somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. At the Movies. An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. I've seen Star Wars about a dozen times. I've seen Star Wars 17 times. 17 times. Star Wars? Uh, 24 times. 40 times and it was great each time. 45. About 57 times. You can never get too much of Star Wars. I... I've seen the first Star Wars 153 times. All together, we have seen Star Wars 324 times. We've been here for six days and it's great! Hello there. Welcome to episode four of the Star Wars at the Movies podcast. Finally. Uh, My name is Stephen Danley and these past few months have been quite a whirlwind for me. Uh, All good things, but I'm excited to get back into the booth and get the podcast engines running again and pick up where we left off. While there's no real set schedule for this show, to make up for the longer than intended wait, this fourth installment is going to be a very special triple feature with a sole focus on the film that would eventually become episode four of the Star Wars saga. We'll be venturing up to the Pacific Northwest to the Portland suburb of Beaverton, Oregon, a name which might sound familiar. Beaverton happens to be the home to the former Westgate Theater, of any that may not have the Star Wars pop culture notoriety of man's Chinese in Hollywood, but holds just as, if not more significant a place in the film's theatrical history. The Westgate was one of 32 theaters that debuted Star Wars on May 25, 1977, and it played on one of its screens for 76 consecutive weeks into November of 1978, outlasting every other theater in the United States by a long shot. That's 532 straight days of Star Wars running through the projector. 532 straight days of that booming John Williams opening fanfare. 532 straight days of that massive Star Destroyer deafeningly soaring overhead. 532 straight days of the Death Star getting blasted into oblivion. The collective joy that 532 days of Star Wars on the big screen must have brought to those Portland moviegoers is remarkable to reflect on, but 532 straight days of Star Wars would be more than enough to make even the most diehard fans' head explode into twinkling little bits. Think about those theater employees tasked with keeping things fully operational for the same movie for one year, five months, and 14 days. Consider the job of managing the longest-running engagement of the most popular blockbuster to have ever hit the screen. The patrons and staff of the Westgate were Star Wars cinematic distance runners that were unmatched. In this episode, we'll be getting first-hand perspectives from both sides of the box office window, so to speak, as well as some additional background on a local battle for the big screen between Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But first, a little more about the Westgate's history and its special relationship with Star Wars. Portland's been called a city on the move, a city of action, a city of progress and has even been called the best entertainment capital this side of western New York the game is over the Blazers win it two in a row here in Los Angeles my oh my rip city 
The Westgate story begins with the story of Tom Moyer, a Portland-born amateur boxer turned movie theater mogul whose luxury theaters chain had screens throughout the Pacific Northwest. The company had become the largest privately owned cinema circuit in the United States by the time he sold it to Norman Lear's Act Three Cinemas in 1989. Tom had learned the business from his parents, Harry and Rose, who in 1932 had leased an old theater in the Selwood area where Harry had been working as a projectionist. The family business grew from there, and by 1950, following his father Harry's passing, Tom began managing the Moyers theaters, which then numbered four. By the 1960s, however, tensions began to rise between Tom and his younger brother Larry, who desired a larger role in the company. Not budging, Tom was expanding the business on his own, extending multi-screen theaters further into the suburbs of Portland. He opened the area's first multiplex, the Eastgate, in 1966, followed by its sister theater, the Westgate, in 1967. After a year-long court battle in 1968, Tom emerged with the upper hand and continued building his cinematic empire. Larry would go on to run the Moyer Family Theaters, and the two brothers and their respective companies remained bitter rivals for decades. As it turns out, Larry's chain was also sold to Act Three, which was ultimately absorbed by Regal Cinemas in the late 90s. But Tom's Westgate got Star Wars. And by got Star Wars, this meant that the Westgate had an exclusive engagement for the film's first eight or so months in the Portland area. Much to poor brother Larry's chagrin, I'm sure. Ted Mayhar, a film critic and a mainstay of the Portland movie scene who passed away just last year, wrote favorably of Star Wars in his review in The Oregonian on May 27, 1977, noting the, quote, oafish, straightforward innocence of some of the good guys. Too short for a stormtrooper? Huh? Oh, the uniform. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. Mayhar also describes Chewbacca not by name, but as a, quote, eight-foot-tall, gorilla-like creature who co-pilots the spaceship. And he likens Darth Vader's costume to those in Sergei Eisenstein's 1938 epic Alexander Nevsky, a comparison I don't recall coming across before, but in hindsight it's actually pretty spot on. He concludes the review by stating that, quote, you can't plagiarize breathless, thoroughly delightful fun, and you can't steal appealingly simple characters, and that like Kubrick's 2001, quote, if you like it at all, one viewing just won't be enough. Well, one viewing certainly wasn't enough for this episode's first guest, Portland native and Westgate sojourner Tracy Larson. On to part one of our feature presentation. <laughs> And now for our feature presentation. children that were born in the late 60s and, you know, grew up in the 70s, you know, I, I kind of regard it as a, a really good time and I think an entertainment where science was really starting to get a little more, a little more real. I mean, I, you know, the, year, the 2001 Space Odyssey came out the year I was born mm -hmm. in 68. So 
You know, that was, I mean, you take a look at the early science fiction movies, which, which were, you know, which I watched as a kid, which were so kind of almost, che- you know, cheesy, but, you know, it was very futuristic. And, you know, I think with Star Trek kind of starting to set the tone and bringing it into bringing, you know, more science fiction into, you know, people's living rooms, that it really sparked a lot of development when it came to science fiction, which was one of those things. I was always like, I was one of those nerdy kids, you know, and being probably the only girl that was like really good in math and science, (laughs) even starting in grade school. Uh, Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I was always kicking everybody's butts with the the math flashcards to the point where the teacher's like, okay, you don't get to play anymore (laughs) because you're constantly winning and none of these other kids can get it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was being one of those kids that was really into math and science from, I mean, probably early age of three and four. Wow. Okay. so, you know, watching, you know, watching, you know, back then it was, you know, they were just getting into the reruns of Star Trek. I think the original series ended by that time. But I had an uncle who was like. Like thirteen years, only thirteen years older than me. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, we'd, we'd watch some of this stuff on TV in the reruns. Yeah. So I really got interested in the math and science stuff. Okay. And and most of the, you know, you didn't really see that many science fiction movies kind of in that early seventies, you know, early getting into the mid seventies genre. Right. So how did you first become aware of Star Wars, and and how did it catch your interest? Well, it did start with we we. Um, heard about it, you know, just reading about it. There was a few things in the paper. And um, as kids, we saw the 30-second trailers on TV. Okay. So that was that was pretty much it. And, I mean, it's like the first time someone saw a trailer and didn't see a trailer and we heard about it at school, then it'd be like we were constantly watching TV when we get home from school to try to figure out when that trailer was going to pop up again. <laughs> <laughs> so. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Here they come. Star Wars. Coming in too fast! An adventure unlike anything on your planet. It's an epic of heroes and villains and aliens from a thousand worlds. Star Wars, rated PG. So it was the trailer that pretty much put us all into that whole mindset of, oh my gosh, we've got to go see this, because it was something so different than anything we had ever seen before. I mean, it's not like the Star Trek that was in our living rooms or, you know, any of the other uh, cheesy or science fiction films that we'd seen on our on our uh, our Saturday night feature here. We had a local TV station that did Sinister Cinema <laughs> every Saturday night, which showed all of the uh, uh, lots of horror and, and cheesy science fiction movies from the you know all going from the 30s to the 60s. So yeah, that yeah. was something a lot of us yeah. who were into the math and science really liked. So that's what really got us into it was the 30 second spots. And then it was just constantly waiting for it to then open up. So, and and I think we probably saw the spots. I would say, I know it was something after spring break. So it was probably like early May. So we, you know, maybe a, you know, a good month before we got to see it or before it came out, but we were, we were definitely jonesing for it. Yeah. Uh, So how did your, your first viewing of Star Wars in the theaters come about and, uh, and who did you see it with? So it was all of us kids that were in the neighborhood that were interested in seeing it. It was the cajoling and and, and pleading with which parent was going to take us and, you know, who was going to make the huge trek because we all lived out in Gresham, which was about almost an hour away from the only theater in the area that was showing it in Dolby, which was the Westgate. 
Westgate was relatively a newish theater at the time. I mean, it hadn't been around. We had some theaters here in, in, in Portland that had been, you know, the ones from downtown. And, and I mean, that were built like uh, going back into the 30s and even the 20s. Right, right. So they didn't have really great sound systems. And if you had a really, you know, if you had a, a movie that you really wanted to see that had really good action, you went to the Westgate. They had the Dolby. Because that was like a good hour drive from Gresham, it was, you know, trying to figure out, pleading to go. So I was able to bring one of the fr- one of my friends, and my mom then at the time trucked us all the way out there, and it was one of those very rare Portland June days where it was sunny and warm outside. Uh, <laughs> that usually does not happen here. Yeah, yeah. At, at least back then, it certainly didn't. This is 77. This is, you know, back then, the, the, the coin phrase was summer didn't start until July 5th. <laughs> a lot of times things would rain out. But we had a really, it was a really nice sunny day. And we got out to the West Gate. And back then, you couldn't buy your tickets ahead of time. There was no Fandango. No, nope, no. Nope. And you could only buy for the upcoming feature. So you yeah. couldn't buy for a later feature. And you had to stand in line outside the theater. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm the strawberry blonde, reddish-haired kid. Um, no sunscreen because, yeah, <laughs> you only use sunscreen at the beach back then. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so after about two hours of standing in the sun and finally getting in and getting <laughs> seated in the big theater at the at the Westgate because they had only like I think like three or four, three theaters at the time maybe four yeah. but it was like they had the one big screen right and right. then a couple of smaller ones and it was it was crazy because it was just you know I mean it was the whole experience of yeah I knew I was getting sunburnt but I didn't care because I was seeing <laughs> Star Wars you know and this was a few weeks after it had come out and I mean the lines were still ridiculously long I mean you had to get there and try to poise yourself right there to be able to get in get your tickets and then start standing in line and yeah. I mean yeah so that was you know it was it was great I mean it was this, this the whole experience and then just just seeing it was amazing I mean it's like you know when you're when you're eight years old and you're looking at this on the big screen and you're just, it was just such unlike anything we had ever seen before. And so was the, was the crowd at the screening you went to, were they, were they pretty actively into it? Were they reacting a lot? Oh yes. I mean, <laughs> you could, there were people in line that they were like, Oh, this is like my sixth time seeing it. And we're like, well, get, my, my thought is, well, then let all of us who haven't seen it get in line ahead of you. Come on. <laughs> But I mean, you had, you know, it was, you know, there's, there were already people there. And I, because I found it was really interesting because we, as when you stand in line, you start talking to people. Yeah. I mean, right. there were people that were there seeing it third, fourth, fifth time. And it had only been out for a few weeks. And we're like, oh my gosh, this has <laughs> got to be good. And yeah. so getting in there and yet, you, you know, even back then it was the overpriced popcorn and soda, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, because you needed it. And, yep. you know, it was just being able to sit there and it was just, just the unconventional start of it with the words coming out, Mm -hmm. going along, you know, streaming on that. And then that, I think what it, it, they made this movie so perfect because it's that, that first firefight in like the first 15 minutes. And that was, it just like sucked you in. Yeah. Right. And I mean, because you've got all of this firepower and the boom, boom and, and seeing this and it was just unlike anything we had really seen before. And I mean, the whole crowd was just getting into it. It really was even back then. I mean, you just back, I I just remember some of the movies that I saw, you know, as a kid, 
you know, like Jaws, where, you know, you, you'd watch it and you'd get an audience reaction when something happened, but having the movie just kick off with a big action scene, it's like, it just kind of like set the tone for like audience interaction. And that, even then, that was just such a weird w- way because people are like, I don't want to say cheering, but, you know, you get into another, you know, one of the firefights and you're looking at it and they're like, go, Luke, go. You know what I mean? People were actually... <laughs> It just sucked you in. It was the not only just the the gra- you know the the special effects, which you know I mean you look at them now and you just think wow, but you have to put yourself in the time frame of when these were. It's like we hadn't seen anything like this. I mean George Lucas was a genius doing this, um, and and just you know you just got into the whole characters, and then and that was where it's just finally I felt kind of redeemed as being like the only girl in my little crowd yeah, who was in yeah. you know really really liked science fiction is because then all of a sudden you saw Princess Leia as this key character that's making decisions. What the hell are you doing? Somebody has to save our skins. Into the boxes, and she's like part of this triad of leadership. And yeah. all of a sudden, then the, then the guys, well, first, first the boys are like, then immediately having the crush on on princess leia i mean that was that was oh it was so immediate and yeah. for us girls that were into the movie it's like are you a luke or are you a han girl you know right, it was right. one or the other yeah <laughs> but i really liked the way i mean this was really also one of those first roles where you got to see a woman i believe you know especially in science fiction which was yeah. such a male-dominated nuance at that time and 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 you hear about going to some of those early science fiction conventions and it was always predominantly male right and then all of a sudden you finally get up there and you're seeing a very strong female character in an ensemble and it for me it felt like redemption it's like yeah yeah there can be women there can be girls in science fiction and you know she's a princess and she's making all of these decisions on behalf of the rebels and it's like yeah Finally, we're getting, you know, some of those women were, and girls were getting our due here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's it's refreshing to see that I, I, it feels like that's finally starting to expand a bit more. To see what, what Star Wars and Princess Leia had done now, it's remarkable. I can't. Oh, yeah. Add. I mean, you, I don't think you would have had Ripley out of Alien mm-hmm. had it not been for Princess Leia. I mean, I seriously, having a, a woman be the strong lead or part, you know, being able to take a lead in a science fiction scenario film. I don't, you know, this was really, I mean, I mean, yeah, some people can say, well, you can go back and, and, you know, like Jane Fonda and Barbarella. I mean, but Mm -hmm. it's like, that was more just for sex appeal versus actual calling the shots like Princess Leia did. And then I really think that did open up the doors. You know, women are no longer the the, the screaming female running from the alien or, Mm -hmm. or something along those lines. You know, they're in the thick of it. And right. then, you know, a couple of years later, you get Alien and with Ripley. And I don't think you'd have that character having had that kind of development had it not been for the female genre finally getting, you know, what's due to them in the science fiction realm through yeah. Princess Leia. Was there any one specific scene or, or moment that had an immediate impact on you from that first viewing? You know... I want to say just that opening fight, the, the opening yeah. fight scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, because really, once you got through, you know, and just setting the tone, it, you, I knew right away this was not going to be your conventional film. And 
I mean, it really, it really did. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, imagine for that, you know, you take a Western film and you, you started out with a gun, you know, a gunfight. I mean, yeah. you're, this is yeah. something that you knew right away. It got you into the plot. It got you into the, okay, why is this, you know, why is Princess Leia, you know, what is this whole, the whole thing about? And yeah. And also just and, like the, and, and the scale, think, the scale of everything. It was just so massive yeah. from, from the get go. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's almost like, you know, usually with like on a, like a roller coaster, you don't start out with an immediate <laughs> spin. You usually, you do a couple of hills and ups and downs, and then you'll get into your, your 360s. Yeah. This like took you into the 360 right away, and you yeah. knew it was yeah. going to be something that was, holy crap, this <laughs> is going to be, it just captured me from that first big scene, opening mm-hmm. scene. And from that point, it was like, wow. And then everything else, I mean, it's just, then it's just, you're watching all the special effects and then watching everything as it's going on. And then you're, you're getting the, the, the plot and the dialogue and, you know, some of the, some of the humor, which really, you know, it's your eight year old mind doesn't exactly get it as well as you then see it again (laughs) as a, you know, a teenager. And then, you know, then some, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) so being, you know, I mean, I've, I've watched the movie. Oh, wait too many times. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but it's one of those things. It's like, you know, it's one of those, you know, nights. And it's like, you know what? I feel like a Star Wars night. Speaking of seeing it too many times, did you end up getting able to get back to the Westgate after that first showing? Yes, I ended up going. Um, I went with one of my cousins who was nine years older than me at the time. Um, she was saying she wanted to go. And I was like, oh, I'll go with you. So I saw it with her and her friends. I think they were like seniors in high school at the time. And then um, then one of the other neighborhood kids' dads took us out, too. So I saw it like three times at the Westgate. Then it went into other distribution to other theaters. You know, they had it in other theaters. And I remember right. seeing it at, that was nearby um, with another friend and his, his mom. And, you know, it was I came out of it going, well, it wasn't Dolby. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, that was that was definitely the, the the thing out of it. But yeah, no, I mean, there were yeah. I so I saw it like in that that summer. I saw it like four times, and then and then you know, I mean, then, then there's other movies that come about, and then you know, you get busy in your fourth grade life and stuff like that. But yeah, it was something yeah. that we always, you know, I mean, and yeah, I think for my birthday that year, I did get a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> took the D batteries, took like right. four D batteries and it yep. lit up and, and it was cool. Yeah. On that front, um, did you immediately have a desire to want to take the movie home with you? And were you into the merchandise? I was into some of the merchandise. I mean, I think the, the most of the boys were really big into the whole buying, you know, saving up their allowances and asking it for Christmas gifts and yeah. stuff like that. I wasn't right. really much of a collector of things, but I did have like Princess Leia figure. And I think I had, I had all three actually. I had, you know, Han, Luke, and Leia. So yeah, you know, and I had those like on my desk. Yeah, the standard, so the standard, it, yeah. Know, and I th- it wasn't that year for Halloween that I dressed up, but I did something. I think it was a few years later when Empire, you know, Strikes Back came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was Princess Leia for for one of those Halloweens. So it was, you know, it was definitely something that with the guys playing the action figures because it seemed more of a it was more of a guy thing to collect the stuff versus a yeah. girl thing. Right. But um, you know, 
I mean, it's, everybody then kind of made it more into a boy movie. It was like, oh, that's so science fiction. And it's like, but yeah, but Princess Leia kicked yeah. butt. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> she was, you know, I mean, the awards are, I mean, yeah, I mean, come on. She's the one standing over the dudes. I mean, yeah. come on. Um, you know, I just remember many years later when VHS and beta, and actually we had a beta machine. <laughs> yeah. And being able to get... When they first started launching Star Wars, you know, and, and on it, I mean, I, I mean, I had to save up a boatload of allowance to get that on a, on a beta version, but I yeah, got it. Yeah, it was, it was not, just, I, not cheap. <laughs> oh, that's it. Well, not only were your machine, you know, the VHS and beta machines not cheap, but boy, I mean, those tapes were like, I mean, you're talking 40, 50 bucks a piece. Right, I mean, it right. Was like 30, I, I mean, them thirty nine ninety nine at your your local store. It was like that was like a bargain, you know. But I mean, for those of us who were like, oh my gosh, I have to go see this. I gotta go see this. I have to have this in my library. So as soon as it was available, it's like scraping up all that babysitting money to be able to buy it. There was like five movies or so that I wanted to get, you know, on VHS format, and that had to be like one of the first ones. Yeah, it just. Yeah. It's still watching it today. It just brings back so many great memories of what it was like being a you know a kid that summer of '77, um, especially you know here in little Portland, Oregon, and just all of the hype that was around it, and you know in school and with my friends. You know, I'll just think very fondly of the few guys in my school that were like, I mean, they were so diehard. They would hum the theme in, in music class. I mean, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember when we got our recorders from music class and, you know, they'd be trying to figure out how to play it on the, the little recorder. I mean, <laughs> yep. Yep. it was it's... so, it, it was, it was really a phenomenon then that I think really just helped set the tone of what then at that point science fiction movies needed to be, you know, um, it wasn't this boring piece, you know, of, of 2001 Space Odyssey, which I mean, for uh, when I say boring, it's, uh, it's from a, <laughs> you know, a, an eight-year-old too. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I, I, I love 2001. I mean, especially, you know, once you start really critiquing it as an adult, you know, it, it for the eight-year-old mind, Star Wars was definitely superior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what adults were really considering as science fiction at that time was 2001. And it just really was, I think it was harder for, I think some of the intellectual movie watchers, the adults, to really get into it. But boy, yeah, I mean, anyone 21 and under under hat was like totally into that movie. So has Star Wars maintained an influence on your life in any way? And, and what part has that, uh, you know, original cinematic experience played in that? You know, it really just holds, as I mentioned, it's just like the, the quintessential summer of my childhood. And and then, you know, just waiting for, you know, a couple of years later for the sequel to come, you know, the you know, Empire to come out and then Return of the Jedi to come out. I mean, it, it was one of those things where the characters really stuck with you. And I think when you see something like that, particularly at a young age, um, you know, you, you really get into the movies that all of the, uh, you know, all of the, the actors did. I mean, I was a huge Indiana a Jones fan just mm-hmm. because seeing you know Harrison Ford as Han was it, it, he just stepping right in as, a, as an actor and I've loved all of the Indiana Jones and many of his other movies 
I mean, just influencing me, it's realizing that, you know, women can definitely take a role in anything involving, you know, science, technology. And and if anything, I mean, because I've been doing public relations now for almost 20 years, Mm -hmm. and I actually have been doing high tech PR. So, I mean, which is one of those things where still a lot of times, you know, out of a room of 20, there may be only three women in the room and the rest of them are guys. But knowing that there was, you know, it's like, yeah, women, of course, can be in tech. I mean, you know, seeing it from a young age and seeing it from an entertainment perspective, it, it if anything, it helps me realize, yeah, there's nothing wrong with being a girl and being into math and science and technology. And, you know, I remember getting my first Commodore 64 and learning how to code, at the, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as I could get one. You know, and I, if anything, it really did help set the trend for me realizing that women could be in science. And could be in leadership roles as well. I mean, when when Carrie Fisher died last December, I I kid you not, I grieved like it was a member of my family. I mean, I watched all of her roles and all of her movies. And I even talked with one of my good friends who lives in Atlanta, who's Mm -hmm. a huge Star Wars buff. And, I mean, he he had the same thing because he's really close to my age, too. He's mid-40s. So he saw this as, you know, he saw these movies as a kid as well. And they really just... With everything that was going on socially in the world back then, and and for those of us who grew up in the 70s, I mean, we realized there was a lot of bad things going on on the social and political realm. But this was like, this was the one thing that allowed us to escape into it. And, and, And having these movies like Star Wars, particularly, that sucked you in, that created this whole new world that you could be part of. And, and, and just just adopt and just kind of almost, people say, you know, escape from reality. Well, when you're eight years old, you hope you don't have to face reality too much. <laughs> but this movie just kind of really just, I mean, it, it helped me not be afraid of being into this whole science and, and math stuff, which obviously was something I was really good in at the time. But, you know, it wasn't, it, it still remains one of those fields that women are, are sorely underrepresented in. And it just provided a really great realm of, of people who were fans, who are, who really get into it, and those of us who may not go to the conventions or anything along those lines, that we can still embrace the movie and the story, and and it just becomes, it just becomes part of your life because you know you realize, you know, you remember it's like okay, I remember seeing this one, you know, this was the movie theater I saw it in, and each one, even regardless if it wasn't one of your favorites, you just still get into it. It, it, it just, it really has set a tone that has lasted for, for those of us who saw the original one when it aired. I mean, it's just like one of those plot lines and storylines and movie lines that has continued with us now into our, you know, 40s and 50s. There is no other movie uh, series out there that has done that for us. I mean, this this really is, I mean, some people will say, well, there's always, you know, Star Trek and they did all these different, you know, and they've got TV. It's like, you know, it's still not the same like Star Wars. Yeah. It really isn't. Star Wars is in its own category. I mean, it, it really is just one of those most amazing pieces of cinematic treasures that I think we all, you know, like many of us who you know, we're, we're, we're getting set up for to be able to see the next one come December. And I'm planning to take a lot of tissue with me because I have no (laughs) idea what's going to happen. But knowing that this whole thing just started with that little movie that it just, it it has now gone into multiple generations and, 
you know, it continues to, you know, get everybody excited when the next one's ready to come out. And it's like, where's the story going to take us next? Yeah. And yeah. you want, and even if you already, you know, even if you read about it, you know, in, in whether it's in, in, um, you know, graphic novels, books or whatever, I mean, it's just being able to see it on the big screen with the latest technology doing the special effects and these amazing actors that are transforming what's on paper into the big screen. And it's, it, it still will remain just one of those phenomenons that I just absolutely love. I mean, if there's, you know, it's like new Star Wars movie coming out, absolutely, I'm going to be there. Well, thanks again, Tracy. This is, uh, it's been a great, great conversation, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. So what would a triple feature be without some intermission music, and from a local talent at that? You've just heard a 1970s recording from David Lee, a frequent performer at the Organ Grinder, the granddaddy of Portland's pipe organ pizza parlors. As in, there were several others. What is a pipe organ pizza parlor? It's a place where Wurlitzer Star Wars medleys, tomato pies, and skee-ball come together. What more could anyone want? I am incredibly sad that I didn't get to experience the golden age of these all-but-extinct establishments, but I hope that some of you did. All right, it's time to get to part two of the feature presentation. Hi! Welcome to the Home Movie Theater. I'm Wayne. And I'm Ursula, and the first thing we're going to do is go over some of the amenities of the Home Movie Theater experience. That's right, so let's talk a little bit about the screen that you'll notice. It's smaller than usual. We've dialed it in at the perfect 36 inches. If you look at the side tables, we've got something for you called a cinema wand. Ooh! Please reach for your cinema wands. My next guest is a man by the name of Dave Ewing who happened to be a young commander in the trenches as the manager of the Westgate in the middle of the theater's record-setting run of Star Wars. I have to send a big thank you to my friend Chris Fawcett for putting me in touch with Dave. In the interview, you'll hear a bit about a peculiar box of Kenner action figures that Dave had discovered and saved from the Westgate. My Kivecast co-host Sky and I had actually discussed this find in detail with Chris back in October of 2016 on episode 77 of the Star Wars Collector's Archive podcast, so be sure to track that episode down and give it a listen if you have any interest at all in vintage Star Wars toys. Anyhow, I was thrilled to be able to speak with Dave about the exhibitor's side of things and share his story here. So are you originally from the Pacific Northwest? Yes, I was born in Seattle. In the 50s and grew up in the 60s, um, part of my time in the Seattle area, and then we moved to Alabama for a few years and then back to Seattle. Did you spend a lot of time at the movies growing up, and, and were there any that had a particular impact on you? I uh, did not spend a lot of time at the movies. Um, the first one I can remember seeing, I was probably seven years old, and that was Disney's The Shaggy Dog that <laughs> okay. we saw on a drive-in in Bellevue. And um, it was shortly after that that we moved to Alabama, 
and I don't think we saw more than one or two movies a year. Uh, I remember seeing A Hard Day's Night by the Beatles when mm-hmm. it first came out, which was pretty amazing that our folks would take us to that. Cause <laughs> yeah. I don't know that they were uh, big Beatles fans, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of Disney movies in there, old Yeller and stuff, but nothing... Uh, I never took to any genre, never spent any time wanting to go to the movies or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> I just was doing other things. Yeah, yeah. So what initially led you to becoming a movie theater manager? Money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was uh, in high school, uh, and to go to college, I was going to have to earn some money. So I mm-hmm. started out working at the local um, golf course pro shop. And after a couple of years there, I had a friend in high school who told me how much money more he was making working at the movie theater. Ah. So uh, the movie theater was, you know, in the same town I was in. It was maybe four or five miles from our house. So okay. uh, that was in Renton, Renton, Washington. That one's about um, 10 miles south of Bellevue. Well, that was my first movie theater job. It was a twin theater owned by General Cinema. And uh, one auditorium had about 950 seats, the other one about 450. Uh, so once in a while, we got to play um, an exclusive Seattle you know, picture. Like today, uh, I think they put them in dozens of theaters in each city. And right. back then, that wasn't necessarily the case. A single theater could play you know, a big movie, um, and be the only one in the city that had it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's where I got my movie theater start was in Renton. Okay. And then, uh, you ended up moving your way up to, to being a manager, right? Right. Um, just kind of, I understood the business. I liked the show business and I liked putting on a good show for people and, mm-hmm. uh, worked hard at it. So I kind of moved up through the ranks in the theater in, in Renton and mm-hmm. then, uh, was an assistant manager there, and then when they had an opening at their Bellevue Theater, um, I told them I wanted to do that, and they put me there. Okay. Uh, I was pretty young. Um, wasn't a real busy theater. It was fairly new, so it wasn't really established yet, and I don't think they really were able to book well for it yet. You know, mm-hmm. we played kind of minor hits, you know, in the 70s, like um, Bobby Deerfield, of all <laughs> things. Okay. Something you've never heard of, but... Uh, <laughs> You write me notes, take a chance, everything's sweetened by a risk, risk. I think that was an Al Pacino Don hit. Anyway, we had lots of um, pictures that we played there that weren't, you know, the big hits. All the big hits were playing at other theaters in town. But anyway, I um, sharpened my teeth there at at that theater. And um, then the next step was the guy that kind of mentored me in Renton had gotten hired by the luxury theater chain in Portland. And... They called me up and asked if I would be interested in moving down there and managing uh, the Westgate Theater, which was playing Star Wars. Right. And so about how far away from, from Bellevue is, is uh, Portland? Uh, 150 miles, I guess. Okay. Okay. A so three-hour drive on the freeway. So it was, a, it was a big full move for you then. Big move. And yeah. I, I probably had driven through Portland, but never really visited it, didn't know anybody there. Um, it was kind of thought of as a sister city to Seattle, a little bit smaller, but same climate, same kind of atmosphere. And um, so anyway, I, I didn't have much going in Bellevue. I was ready to move on, make some more money. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I was willing to move. 
So before that, because Star Wars, I think it, it come out in May, it, you know, obviously in May of 77. Uh, was there any right. buzz buzz among just the, the working cinema community about the movie at that time? No. Uh, you know, George Lucas had had two movies prior, and one right. was THX 1138, uh, which didn't do anything, I don't think, and then uh, American Graffiti. So we actually played American Graffiti um, exclusively in the theater in Renton. So I had a little bit of experience with the big crowd kind of thing because yeah. we had the quarter-mile-long lines uh, for that for oh, a month. okay. Wow. So I, before going on to Star Wars, I'd already experienced that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, was there a buzz about Star Wars? Not really, other than American Graffiti had been a hit. Um, I don't think... Space opera movies were popular at the time that Star Wars <laughs> no, came out. No, not really. And so I don't think there was a lot of buzz, and it didn't open in very many theaters. I think, right. if I remember right, it was a 40 theaters maybe across the whole country. Yeah, yeah, it definitely and, had a small start. Right, and they added a few more, I guess. It opened on a Wednesday. They added a few more by Friday. But it had a pretty small... Um, opening mostly in these exclusive uh theater things per city so i don't think they expected much or they didn't know what to expect i should say yeah so no i don't remember any kind of buzz before it opened and uh when you had already um i guess at the time that you had moved down to the Westgate, it had been there for a few months already um did you have any kind of you know expectation as to what to expect in terms of uh like a working environment dealing with what i think at that point it started to kind of take off right it was uh that was about 4 months after it opened right. and one of the things that they were asking me to come down for is um because i had experience with big crowds previously okay. Yeah. And I was doing well at the theater I was at, and I, I think the manager they had in there was just worn out and wanted to go. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I, I think I drove down there and looked at the place mm-hmm. and saw there was uh, really busy, kind of a shambles. It needed a lot of fixing up, but that's what yeah. I was good at. And um, I thought it was something that was salvageable and I would have a lot of fun, and um, as I said before, I make a little more money, so yeah. I was willing to go down and give it a try. Mm-hmm. So when you when you got started there, did you like how many people did you have on staff? Oh, there's probably 25, 30 people. Okay, and um, in terms of you know dealing with the demand, that must have been challenging. And were there any specific problems that you remember facing and and trying to deal with? Well, the the sheer volume of people. Um, day after day, and almost for every show, I think we were running five shows, maybe four shows a day mm-hmm. on the weekends. Um, I don't think we were running matinees at that mm-hmm. time. But just the nonstop onslaught of people for that one show, plus we had two other screens. Right, right. I was going to say, so it was only playing on the, the one screen, and, and the Westgate right. had two others at that point? Right. And yeah. the theater that was playing Star Wars had a 1,000 seats. And the other two theaters, I think, were about 450 and 350. So, um, you know, this was a quality theater. Yeah. It was before it got worn out. <laughs> um, and they was playing big movies all the time. There was only two major uh, theater companies in Portland, and they were both kind of ma and pa kind of things, and they were brothers who were really competitive, and the rumor was they hated each other. 
Tom and Larry Moyer right. were the brothers, if I remember right. And I don't think there was any other national movie uh, presence there in Portland. I didn't see any AMC theaters or mm-hmm. General Cinema wasn't there. So none of the big ones were there, and I don't know why. So anyway, going back to the theater, I'll kind of describe driving up to it. It was on, I think, Cedar Hills Boulevard, um, and it had its own parking lot. It was a freestanding building. It looked like a twin screen theater that had one more theater tacked on, and that's exactly what it was. Yeah. And the architecture of the third theater that was tacked on wasn't the same as the rest of the building. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it looked like a cheap add-on. Okay. And um, it had a uh, kind of pylon sign out on the road, the main highway, that you changed for whatever movies you were playing. Mm-hmm. But it didn't have a sign on the exterior of the theater, which was puzzling to me. I oh. think this big extravagant theater would have a big, you know, Westgate triplex or whatever, but mm-hmm. nothing on the building. So it could have been, you know, it could have been a warehouse. It could have been, uh, you know, a frozen beef locker building or something. It was kind of indescript. So fairly large parking lot. Uh, landscaping was all worn out. You know, it obviously needed some upkeeping. And then you go inside, had glass front doors in the lobby. Then on the right-hand side was a three-station box office. So there was no exterior box office, nothing to sell tickets on the outside. You okay. had to come into the building. Then you had your big theater with Star Wars on the right-hand side, and then the two smaller theaters were on the left-hand side. So that part worked out good because Star Wars, as you probably can remember, was a pretty noisy uh, movie <laughs> in the theater with six-track um, Dolby. Dolby, Dolby, that's and right. Yeah. turned up so everybody could feel it. And mm-hmm. so fortunately that theater didn't share a wall with the other two because the sound transfer probably would have been bad <laughs> uh, for people watching in the other two theaters. Sure. So the interior was kind of finished in this gold, um, kind of gold, orangish colors and then uh, they had some Oregonish, uh, you know, state of Oregon uh, kind of motif of wood and bark. So I had these sconces on the wall that were kind of like a cut out of a tree with some bark around it and then you huh. had the electric lights coming out of it. They had these big massive kind of leather covered doors uh, at the top of each aisle going into the theater. So there were okay. four doors uh, going into the theater. You go into the theater and it was, like I said, a thousand seats. Uh, had curtains all the way around, 360 degrees. Um, did not have a curved screen. It had a flat screen, but the curtains were curved in front of it, ah. making you think you were going to have a <laughs> curved screen. Right. Uh, all the seats were those plush kind of rocking chair kind of things with gold fabric on them. Don't remember what the carpet was. I think it was <laughs> a darker color. But anyway, that kind of is how uh, the theater looked. It was big, grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ceiling was finished with acoustical tiles. Now, most of them nowadays, you know, you just look up there and you see the ceiling trusses and the, you know, air conditioning and stuff. And this was completely finished, so it looked really elegant and extravagant. Yeah, that's In its that's heyday, great. it was built in 67, I believe. Um, it was probably just a beautiful, grand, you know, luxury theater. Yeah, yeah, for, for, for big-time films. Yeah. Yeah, I think that six-track uh, stereo was a big part of it when I saw it. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was a big part. It just made it a bigger picture. You know, you're always already seeing this huge 70-millimeter uh, thing on a screen. It was just huge, but to have the surround sound um, and the intensity of it was, uh, to me, pretty impressive. 
yeah. even though I wasn't, you know, a person that was into that genre. Yeah. To me, it was still a good movie. It was well done. I kind of looked at things from more the technical aspect of how did they do that and mm-hmm. uh, how were they able to film that and that kind of stuff. More yeah. than I paid it. I couldn't tell you the plot of it today. <laughs> uh, it, it just wasn't that important to me. But yeah. the technical things I always enjoyed, you know, the models that they made and how they were able to film that and the crawl at the beginning of the movie. You know, I was always impressed with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, wondering exactly how they did that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there were things I liked about the movie that um different than the plot. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, too, about Star Wars. When you really think about just that original, it, it's in terms of story and plot and all that, it's it's pretty simple. It's more just the, the spectacle of, of what was going on that I could see just really kind of blowing anyone away that, that hadn't seen anything. No one had seen anything like it before. So yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to hear a non-fan perspective that was still appreciative of, of those elements to it, because yeah, I just have to imagine it really must have just blown people away uh, at first. Well, I think, yeah, the opening scene with the huge, I don't remember which ship it was, but this huge ship comes from the top of the screen uh, down to the bottom, and it's taking up the entire screen, and you're seeing all this little detail on it. And I would try to figure out what all these little things were that were attached mm-hmm. to the ship you know yeah it's probably yeah. just you know movie model making they were nothing but for me that was the kind of thing i was looking for was how did they do that you know mm-hmm. how did they where was the camera sitting when this thing came over and that kind of thing and that was that was before they had the computer generated uh graphics yeah i mean in terms of star wars it was all um all physical objects, and, and, and the only computer element to it was really just the control of the camera. They were able to program shots to be repeated over and over again, where that, that was how they made things look so fluid. I mean, but everything you saw existed, you know, in terms of the ships and, and, and all that. So I remember a space movie I did like before uh, Star Wars was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, uh, the plot was kind of way out there, especially in the last part of the movie, you mm-hmm. know, it was a little bit hard to understand. But uh, the computer versus man thing, I, mm-hmm. I kind of liked at that age. And uh, reading how they filmed some of that stuff before computer-generated stuff was pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think and, a lot of the... And I uh, had a friend um, who kind of got me into that movie because he had told me he had seen it like 14 times. I said, <laughs> I said to myself, what could be so good? So I, I probably went to see it four or five times. Yeah, and It was in a yeah. big 70-millimeter theater in Seattle, and um, I kind of got into that. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think, you know, a lot in terms of the, the kind of space aesthetic of Star Wars, a lot of that technical wizardry was, was derived from what was achieved with 2001. So they're def- definitely very different movies in terms of <laughs> tone and, and themes and all that. But it's interesting that I think some of the same, they're kind of technically linked in, in a lot of ways. So in terms of, uh, you know, the technical aspect of the presentation, I know you guys had a, a 70 millimeter print at one point, but you start, did you start on 35? When I got there, it was already 70 millimeter. Already but, 70, um, okay. From, from what I've read, it started as a 35 millimeter print with four mm-hmm. track stereo. Uh, by the time I got there, it was already 
70 millimeter. And I can verify that because we were showing a trailer for Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 70 millimeter, and I'd never heard of that before. I'd never heard of a 70 millimeter trailer with six-track stereo. So the sound of that was awesome. So uh, great sound system there, uh, six-track stereo. I was really interested in the um, projection room of uh, a theater this size and so many speakers and such deep, uh, vibrant sound, what kind of sound system there was. So, uh, of course, go up in the projection room, and the projectionist is showing me this cabinet that was Mm -hmm. specially put there for this movie. And this Mm -hmm. was before they had, I think, special THX or whatever they call it. Right. Uh, it was just six-track Dolby. And so you had a, a amplifier cabinet, and there were three crown amplifiers, and uh, they were stereo, um, and then some kind of uh, electronics um, device in there. I asked the projectionist how many watts per channel. You know, there's six channels. And I was expecting for a theater that size and speakers that size, he was going to say like something like 1,000 watts per channel. Uh-huh. It was 100 Huh. There's only 100 watts per channel. Wow. <laughs> so when when you hear these stereo guys trying to sell you a stereo system for your house that's got 1,000 <laughs> watts per channel, they're nuts. They're not. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, they're like that's... 25 watts per channel. Uh, and then the projectors, there were um, convertible 70-millimeter, 35-millimeter projectors, which were mm-hmm. kind of cool. I hadn't seen those before. And then, again, the other two theaters were just 35-millimeter in both of them. Okay, and did Star Wars eventually uh, move to one of the smaller theaters, or did it always stay in, in the big theater there at the Westgate? It always stayed in the big theater. Okay. Um, that's, that's an interesting question, because there was an incident that occurred there um, with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. So um, I've been told I had my dates wrong on this before, so I'll, I'll try to be careful here. Um, but we were playing the trailer for... Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and we were supposed to open that, um, and I think that was in November of 77, and I remember that there was some conflict with, that was also supposed to show in 70 millimeter, and we only had one 70 millimeter theater, so both Star Wars and Close Encounters couldn't play in the same theater, and I believe the plan was to open Close Encounters in 70 millimeter in the big theater with a thousand seats and moved Star Wars to the smaller theater that had only 35mm and only about 450 seats. And um, I remember there were newspaper ads saying that Close Encounters were starting, you know, on Friday, and we were getting phone calls, and then I heard there was a big hubbub, and maybe we weren't going to open it. And I remember asking uh, the home office, what are we supposed to tell people? Are we opening it or not? Mm-hmm. And we got the answer, uh, we don't know. <laughs> try to put them off so just from what i read afterwards there was some kind of a lawsuit uh between um the the movie distribution company our contract said it had to play in the big theater in 70 millimeter until uh we dropped below some amount of money that it was making and we were still way above that okay so i believe at that time it went to our sister theater on the other side of portland so we still retained Star Wars in the big thousand-seat theater for its entire run, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind went to the Eastgate Theater on the east side of town. Okay. And but yeah. um, because there were so many customers that, uh, you know, we couldn't give them a direct answer, and it, it had been in the newspaper that we were opening it, 
We had a line of people lined up outside for Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars. <laughs> and when we told the people lined up for uh, Close Encounters that it wasn't opening here, it was across town, we had kind of a mini-riot in oh, no. the lobby. People were upset. Curtains were torn down. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, nobody was harmed, no windows were broken, but, um, people had a good time kind of trashing the lobby. <laughs> oh my god, I can only imagine. Yeah, that's, that's two kind of camps of pretty, uh, passionate people, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we retained Star Wars in the big theater and can continue playing other, you know, moderate hits in the other two theaters. Did these hordes of, of Star Wars moviegoers always just seem satisfied with the experience, even though I know it must have been stressful for, for you all? Did they just kind of keep coming in droves with no <laughs> no sign yeah. of stopping? I don't remember any complaints from any Star Wars customers. They all mm -hmm. seem to be having a good time. And uh, the show we put on for them in the big theater was pretty impressive. We didn't have too many problems with that theater. I remember once we had the lamp in one of the projectors um, explode. So oh, yeah. until the you know all the mirrors and stuff in the lamp house could be re replaced, we were running on one projector. So oh, okay. um, you know you had to stop the show literally to change the reel of film uh, once or twice during the film. So that was kind of uncomfortable, you know, mm -hmm. because. As a showman kind of guy, that's not the kind of stuff, that's not the kind of show I want to put on. You know, yeah. I like it to be yeah. seamless and people have a great time without wondering what's going on and that kind of thing. And then there was one day that we were going to open the show. I think it was on a Sunday morning, so it was a matinee show, and it was pretty busy. And uh, I get a call from the projection room and something's wrong with the curtains. So I look out there, and sure enough, somebody had tied the curtains together. <laughs> oh, and I go down there... And they had taken a shoelace and stuck it through, you know, the <laughs> curtains to literally tie them together. So in opening the curtains, which is done by motors and stuff, right. uh, it actually broke in the mechanism. So <laughs> we had these stuck curtains. Uh, I think the projectionist and I were able to untie the shoelace and pull them aside. But, you know, they stayed open then for a couple of days until everything could be fixed and Again, one of, that's just one of those no, annoying things for the manager that that's not that's not a good show. That's not the show I want to present <laughs> to people. But yeah, that's kind of what happens. Yeah, I, hooligans. <laughs> hooligans, yes. Portland. <laughs> I tell you, every day it seemed like there was some kind of disaster going on. Um, and you know, not like terrible things like a fire or anything like that, but just just things that would drive a manager nuts. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember hearing this big crash on the projection room floor one day and go up there, see what's going on. And the projectionist had forgotten to secure the reel of film in the projector and it had fallen out <laughs> and broken the film. So, you know, you got to stop. Of course, the movie stops and he's got to repair the film and get it going yeah. again. And yeah. um, we had our safe robbed one morning before we oh, opened. Geez. So, you know, and the, uh, I'm not quite sure how it happened but there was no damage somebody had the combination open the safe and we're we're trying to get ready to open our box office 15 minutes before you know we open and we have no money nothing so you know money from the movies and stuff didn't get put in the safe so somebody just got the money that we would use to open up in the morning yeah, uh, yeah. but uh still we had we couldn't open we had no money <laughs> 
So I <laughs> made a call to my boss, and he went to a bank or something and came in with some, you know, rolled quarters and some ones and stuff so we can make change. And, you know, that's, a, that's another thing that's probably different today is that back then it was all cash. We, I think we could do credit cards, but it was pretty a laborious pretty rare, process. Too yeah. often. So yeah. it was all cash. So people paid cash for their movie tickets, and they paid cash for stuff at the concession counter. And so we just dealt with a lot of cash. And mm-hmm. I remember a lot of days you would spend your two hours between showtimes counting cash and putting it together to take to the bank. So mm-hmm. um, that was kind of a... That was another thing that, uh, you know, you just don't think about is we just, we we would literally take all the cash from the box office after, you know, Star Wars came in. And we'd go sit in the storeroom where we stored cups and popcorn tubs and stuff because I didn't, they didn't have an office in this theater. You were supposed to do everything in the box office. Well, we're not going to count, you know, (laughs) $10,000 worth of cash out of the box office. So we would go sit on some boxes and we'd count out this cash. And sometimes it would take... A long time. It takes a couple hours. So instead of doing stuff like taking care of, you know, customers' problems or issues or whatever, you were sitting in a, a storeroom, sitting on a box, counting cash for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here's another great one. So um, this was just a couple weeks after I started there. And, uh, of course, busy movies, parking lot is full, and the fire marshal comes. <laughs> and... He says, you've got cars in your fire lanes, and you need to remove them. I'll give you half an hour, or we close the show. Well, um, you know, uh, I go look out there, and the fire lanes are well marked. It's like they had been through on an inspection, and so all the fire lanes have been repainted. There were signs up there saying, no parking, you'll be towed. And theaters then, and probably now, they didn't have PA systems because people would call all the time and want you to make announcements in the theater, and that's another thing that ruins the experience for everybody. Sure, so sure. Um, I've got three separate theaters. I've got a half hour. The theaters are full. <laughs> and how do you go in there and tell the 20 people that were parked in fire lanes they need to move their cars? Well, Ugh. really, you can't. And so I called the um, tow truck company that was on the signs, and I said, you need to get these cars out of here. So they came in. It was like a rodeo. They came in with four or five trucks, and they packed everybody away. So kind of naively, I just thought these people would come out after the show, notice their cars were gone, come back in, and and kind of like blame themselves for being uh, dumb and parking in a fire lane. But, oh, no. They were angry with us yeah. that we had their cars towed, and why didn't we come tell them? And you know, and they don't understand that. Uh, well, you're just one person out of the two thousand that are in the theater today. Right. And, um, everybody else managed to park somewhere besides the fire lane. But anyway, so uh, that was just kind of another one of those things about the Westgate that I had not experienced before, and hope not to experience that kind of fun again. <laughs> The screen was too small. The floor was sticky. The romantic subplot felt tacked on. In short, we demand a refund. Sorry, it's against our policy. No policy, you... So, in terms of Star Wars and the Westgate, were there any any special promotions or merchandise things that you remember that you guys did? Well, sometime uh, while I was there, I uh, must have had five minutes of spare time, and I was kind of going through uh, the box office area just getting rid of stuff that didn't need to be there and i found a box of star wars toys mm-hmm. little 
figurines that were about four inches tall. And right. They had uh, R2-D2 and Chewbacca, Luke, and Leah, Princess Leah. Um, each one had it was in a little cellophane wrapper, and I asked the cashier why we had these, and she said <laughs> that they were giving them away uh, when the show first opened. So that kind of made sense to me, and I'd been there a little while at that time, and we hadn't given any away while I was there. So I just said to myself, uh, well, I guess I'll take these home and save them in case they're worth something someday. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a box of about um, 45 of them, and I had these visions that, you know, maybe someday they'll be worth so much I can buy a house or something (laughs) like that. Um, I can tell you that I, I actually sold them um, to a collector uh, about six months ago, and no, it wasn't enough to buy a house. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, um, other than that, no, I don't remember any kind of merchandise connected with the movie. Okay. Um, I should say also that uh, this theater had the longest run of the movie in the United States. Right, right. It was 76 weeks, right? Right, that's yeah. what I understand. Um, yeah. I was not there at the beginning, and I don't think I was there at the end. I was kind okay. of in the middle. So that must have meant did you did you have people coming from from elsewhere flocking to to the Westgate? We did once they lost um, once they lost Star Wars. I specifically remember a tour bus coming in, pulling into the parking lot and unloading <laughs> people, and they were from the Seattle area. Huh. Uh, and this was after the run had ended everywhere else in the United States, so mm-hmm. it became kind of a I guess a cult thing to travel down to the Westgate and see it again before it closed. Yeah. And this is in the days before you could buy a copy and take it home. Right, right. This is before VHS or DVDs mm-hmm. or um, Netflix or wherever else you get it now. You know, once it closed, it closed, and you weren't going to see it again until some theater opened it. So um, I can understand why, you know, if they enjoyed the movie, they wanted to get a little more of it before it closed for good. Yeah. For what they thought was closing for good. Right, right. That's that's the... in those days there was no you didn't foresee, you know, home video and DVDs and stuff. That just people were arrested in those days for having illegal copies of movies. So um, yeah, I, I can understand people you know wanting to come down and see it before it closed. And we were, I think. Um, the longest run in the country because of some wording they had in the contract for the film. And it might be the same, you know, wording that made them keep Star Wars instead of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So what I read somewhere is as a result of box office performance clause in its booking contract. So we were still making enough money to be over whatever point they had put in the contract that um, we either had to keep it or didn't didn't have to give it up. So, yeah, that's how we ended up being the last theater in the United States to be playing Star Wars. That's it's a pretty crazy story because, yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of the way things work these days, films are they're they're out, it seems like, for just a, a hot minute and then they're just everywhere, easily accessible. So I can see was something that is so uh, popular that it could just drive people to the, the point of <laughs> insanity almost. Uh, yeah, and I don't, you know, I'm not really a big movie buff still. You know, I never was, and I'm still not. Um, has there been a movie as big as Star Wars other than the other Star Wars sequels <laughs> and prequels? 
It's, I mean, it's, it's tough to compare. Um, yeah. And it's, I find that interesting too, that, that you weren't too much of a movie buff, but you, you did, at least for a little while, had a, a real love for, for the showmanship angle. I, I did. And while, uh, while I was in the business, uh, I loved going to Academy Awards parties, you know, mm-hmm. that managers and film type people went to. And I really felt that my job was to help promote the film and make money uh, for the people who made the film, in yeah. addition to the guy who owned the theater. Sure. Um, but really, I thought I was promoting um, films, and that was important to me to uh, show them the right way. Um, people were paying money to come in, and I wanted to make sure that they were getting um, the best viewing uh, experience they could have, that the food that we had at the theater was good. And I got to say, while, you know, the first few weeks or months I was at the Westgate, you know, the food wasn't so good. You know, (laughs) it was so busy that I don't think people took the time to do things right. All the equipment kind of needed some spit and polish. Well, I shouldn't say spit and polish about food. Um, (laughs) Everything needed a good cleaning and things brought back to their, you know, technical standard. And that we weren't quite there yet bothered me. But we got there. I think we improved it quite a bit. before i left it still just it blows my mind to to think of you being in charge of this place when you were what 25 i was 22 oh 22 when you're at the west 22 when i went to the Westgate. yeah pretty young that's yeah barely older than my staff you know most of your staff is high school age maybe a few college age kids but uh i had been taught by a great guy the guy that hired me to go down there um really was my mentor in the business and the theater i worked worked at with him he really made working uh fun you would almost work for free it was so fun and you would work long hours and come in at the drop of a hat if you needed somebody just because you know as a crew we had fun we had fun working for him and so i tried to do the same thing there i tried to make um you know they (laughs) if you got a hold of any of them they might tell you that i was a tyrant or something, but uh, really, I, I was just trying to make uh, the work experience fun for everybody because it was tough working with a lot of people. I think if you're not the boss, it's different. Uh, mm-hmm. You just come to work and you put up with it and you go home and forget about it. But right. when you're the manager, there's there's always something you've got to be thinking about. There's always something going wrong you've got to fix. Um, you know, people leave and you need to hire new ones and you know yeah. all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. It's probably harder than people would think it is that you're just standing there selling tickets. Well, there's a lot more than that. You've got food and you've got a staff and you've got projectionists and you've got films coming and going and um, you've got to maintain the place. You've got janitorial crews that got to clean up overnight and there's a, there's a lot to it. It was yeah. a good learning experience. It was kind of my alternate to college was learning about business by being in it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when, when did you leave the business and, and why? Well, I think uh, after about a year uh, of Star Wars, you know, we were we were hearing the movie all the time. You were hearing the booms, and, you know, you could predict when somebody's <laughs> blaster was going to blast and right. some spaceship was going to go somewhere. And hey, you kind of, you just, it gets kind of old. And um, <laughs> I didn't really adapt to Portland that well. Um, I was so busy with the theater that you don't have time to hang out with people other than the, than the ones you're working with. So I was ready. Uh, this, the movie was kind of slowing down, and I was ready to go back home. So yeah. I, I just asked to be transferred to another of the same chain theater in the Seattle area if, if something came up, something mm-hmm. did. And I moved back up to a theater in Bellevue where, you know, I had just come from a year earlier. 
So it was a different theater, um, different chain, but uh, went up there, met a person there who was a volunteer firefighter for the Bellevue Fire Department, Mm -hmm. and she knew that I was getting kind of um, jaded to the movie business, and she said she was testing for another city in the area, and why don't I, you know, kind of get buffed and test too? So Mm -hmm. I did, took their test, or I should say tests, did well enough to get placed on a list. Uh, a year later, they call, and I became a firefighter. So that's how I got out of the movie business. I think I just had enough and was ready yeah. to move on to something else. Yeah, and you you did that ever ever since then, right? Yeah, I made a career of that. I was a firefighter for 32 years. Wow. Um, retired, and then a year later, I joined the local volunteer fire department where I live, which was a long way from uh, where I worked. So I'm still doing it as a volunteer, but it's different than doing it as a career. I mean, you don't, you're not sitting at a station for 48 hours right. um, yeah. waiting to go on calls. I mean, I'm at home and go to calls when I'm available. But it gets in your blood, kind of like the movie theater business. I thought about moving, or, uh, building movie theater in this community that I live in here mm-hmm. um, for, for years, but just never found the right place. And then finally, I just kind of had the feeling that I didn't understand the business anymore. Uh, and so I just kind of like tabled that idea. Just curiously, I have connected with a couple of the people that I worked with there because I appreciated them so much. They kind of kept me sane. And yeah. through Facebook, of course, I found a couple of them and mm-hmm. chatted with them. And um, none of them has a real love for Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> it broke, so it broke think, you all down. <laughs> I think so. I think just uh, constant wearing down of hearing it every day. It was on TV the other night, and I couldn't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I watched the uh, cantina scene because that was always one of my favorites. But other than that, you know, I just ah, <laughs> seen it before. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's it's actually quite quite refreshing to hear. <laughs> um, well, but well, I do appreciate that. You know, people like uh, yourself and the others that are probably listening to your podcast um, have this deep appreciation for it, and you've probably seen all the episodes and that's pretty cool i don't i don't know other than the original that i've seen i may have seen the first three i don't remember um that's that's probably all you you really needed to see i think you'd be okay you'd be, you'd be even more broken down if you had kept watching I, after that <laughs> yeah i have no idea what a sith is and what he would be revengeful about right well that's i think that's probably for the best um okay <laughs> I did see one in a local theater. It was the one with Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> oh. Okay, I saw, I saw that one in its entirety in a movie theater. Well, almost <laughs> in its entirety because the film broke toward the end, <laughs> honestly. Uh. You know, I can see online a lot of people had kind of a love for the theater itself. Um, apparently it lasted another 20 years or so after Star Wars before... They ruined the big theater. They split that into three, and then it lasted a few years after that and closed. Okay. It was demolished in, I think, 2006. Yeah, man, that's that's too bad. Um, Well, the next next time I'm up there, I'll I'll definitely uh, I'll pay my respects to to the spot. The spot in Beaverton. Yes. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Dave, and uh, I I really appreciate you taking the time, and hopefully we'll we'll get to, to chat again sometime. Yeah, may the force be with you.
Sitting on boxes of concession supplies in the back room, counting piles of Star Wars box office cash for hours. If there was ever an image that embodied the lucrative force of this movie, that may be it. Wow. Okay, to round things out, I have another special guest in journalist and film historian Michael Cote, whose uh, Star Wars retrospective articles for the Digital Bits are a constant source of information for the podcast and website. David previously mentioned a court battle between 20th Century Fox and Columbia over the Westgate's booking of Close Encounters, and Michael is kind enough to provide some additional context. So, Close Encounters had its wide release date for December 14th of 77, and this was going to be causing issues with theaters that were still running Star Wars at the time. And with the Westgate specifically, there was a, a lawsuit that, that ended up coming down between Columbia and Fox. That's correct? Um, yes. There were two competing companies in Portland, in the Portland area right. throughout, throughout the Pacific Northwest, but especially in Portland area. During the era of Star Wars, it was two brothers, I believe, who had yeah. competing companies. One was Moyer Theaters and one was Luxury Theaters. And the theater in which Star Wars played, the Westgate, was was luxury. <clears throat> and I believe their intention was, they had been playing Star Wars since May, since it had first opened. Their intention was to move it to another theater, <clears throat> a smaller theater, mm-hmm. and then play Close Encounters in the big, the big house at the Westgate. Right. And, you know, I think nobody expects movies to play <laughs> six, seven, eight months. Right. So at some point they made the contract to play Close Encounters, and I'm sure it seemed reasonable at the time. But as it got closer, I think Fox was informed that they were going to play Close Encounters, and they realized, I think some of this was probably ego or posturing, because at that point Star Wars had become the most popular movie ever, and they yeah. were trying to, trying to show off the fact that they it was theirs. But legally they were entitled to step in and say, you can't move it, <laughs> because, because we have a contract that allows it to stay there as as long as it grosses a a certain you know above a certain figure right which, which it was right. doing so they you know sought the legal process to prevent close encounters from playing there and um they succeeded <laughs> and so um what ended up happening is luxury theaters ended up playing close encounters at another one of their theaters the eastgate on the mm-hmm. opposite side of town and somehow it ended up playing in two 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 theaters. Moyer Theaters also had it in one of theirs. Okay. The um the town center is where it ended up playing. Although if you look at the newspaper promotion in the days leading up to its release and the first few days, <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of confusion because I don't think they could sort it out immediately. Yeah. It took some time to to get it sorted out because there are some ads where it was being advertised at other theaters. So mm-hmm. those first couple of days, I imagine there were a lot of people who wanted to see it who showed up at the, a theater where it wasn't playing. What the hell is going on around here? Who you people? So in in terms of where the Westgate itself stood on this, where luxury theaters stood on this, they, they would have preferred to, to bring in Close Encounters, but it was Fox that was kind of obligating them to continue Star Wars? That's my understanding. I mean, okay. I, I, for a while, I, I thought it was the theater that just changed their mind. Mm-hmm. But it, in reading over all the news coverage, it, it looks like Fox was the most aggressive party in all of this because they didn't want it moved. I don't think it would have 
been a big deal if they had moved it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, they didn't want to move it to one of the smaller theaters at the Westgate right. because they only had the Dolby system and the 70-millimeter capability in that big house. And right. I don't think they would have been able to equip the other ones quickly yeah. like that. But but they did in, end up installing that system at the Eastgate for COVID oh, counters. So they, okay. could have, they could have swapped them. But I guess the attendance for Star Wars was still pretty significant at that point that Fox just didn't. They didn't want to diminish the experience for anybody by moving it to a smaller theater, um, but they were legally allowed to do that because you know their contract had a had a holdover clause in it that stipulated as long as we continue to gross above a certain figure, you can keep it. Wow, that's just crazy. even though the terms of the contract had been met. The original yeah. contract called for I believe about twelve weeks, which by the end of August that that <laughs> period of time would have been met. I thought I'd read somewhere that the Westgate. They had upgraded to a 70-millimeter print of Star Wars. Did they start with 35 only, and then they, they moved up to a 70-millimeter? If you ask me, yeah. based on everything I've researched, I think all of the credible information points to them beginning that run in May in 35-millimeter. And then in uh, the fall and sometime during October is when they switched okay. to 70. The theater always had 70-millimeter capability from the time it was right. built. But they didn't have the, the Dolby unit mm-hmm. to play it at that time. There were I don't want to get too technical, but there were a couple different types of Dolby systems available. And the, the basic system, which is what they had in the spring of 77, when Star Wars opened, they only had the basic unit that could only handle 35 millimeter, which they had installed a few months earlier for another movie. John Norman Howard was once the best, but he was burning out. Until he met I believe there's a best of both worlds. Esther Hoffman. Old and new. Recognize and change yourself Star is born. If you, if you uh, so, so they. I think when Star Wars was being booked, they they tried to get a lot of theaters to install Dolby. They didn't really succeed. They did get some, but they they targeted a few theaters that already had it. That was mm-hmm. one of them. Okay. So that may be why it ended up at the Westgate to begin with. Okay, that that would make sense. <clears throat> um, but yes, I believe they switched to seventy in in October of seventy seven, and and as a result of that, there was a spike in the attendance, and that's why mm-hmm. it was still doing exceptionally well when it came time for Close Encounters to be released. Yeah. Okay. Now, you you had mentioned to me that there were other uh, cities that had the same problem with the conflict with Close Encounters, but it would often, it would go different ways. Mm-hmm. Are there any specific ones that, that you recall that were particularly interesting? Uh, <laughs> the most uh, famous example would be the situation in San Francisco. It, mm-hmm. it occurred in a lot of places, but what makes it interesting is because the, the laws in place are state to state. Yeah. So the judges involved, the legal people involved, uh, I, it's the way the laws are interpreted or the power that, that the judges have <clears throat> enables them to interpret these as they please. And so yeah. that's why the results were different. Okay. And in the case of San Francisco, it was playing at the Coronet, pretty fam- famous place mm-hmm. now, sadly demolished. But yeah. uh, it was at the time, at the time in December when Star Wars was pulled, the Coronet had the country's highest grossing engagement of Star Wars. It was the most successful theater playing. It was a pretty large house. Well, well over a thousand seats, and you know they had an exclusive for the city, and one of the one of only a handful of seventy millimeter presentations. So, yeah. the, you know, a destination cinema for a lot of people. And in that case, the judge ruled in favor of Columbia, and so Star huh. Wars had to end. December thirteenth was you know the last day, and <laughs> they had to. And and the company that ran the Cornell, which was the UA. Uh, had no place to put it because they had already booked all their Christmas movies and they didn't mm-hmm. have the 
you know, projection and sound equipment they wanted anywhere else, so they had to drop it. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it was rebid. It ended up opening at a competing theater a week later. And Close Encounters did begin on December 14th there. Some other cities, if it was a, a multiplex, uh, the simplest solution was to just move it to another screen within the complex and mm-hmm. let both movies play. Yeah, that and another sense. solution would be to move it to another theater within that market that run by the same company. That way, you know, the same company's earning earning the money. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's all, you know, that's a, a totally different era where the way movies are booked is different than today. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's pretty complicated. Going back to the Westgate and its crazy run, I mean, do you know of any other films that had as long an engagement at one venue? Um, yeah. I mean, Star Wars played there, if I did the math right, it was 76 weeks. Right, it's like a year and a half. Which is just an incomprehensible figure, especially when you think about how long movies play today. But yeah, well, <clears throat> during the Roadshow era, which had ended by then, but you know, movies were engineered to play for many, many months because they were purposely booked in only a single place. You know, by limiting the number of <clears throat> venues within a certain you know, mileage range, you could extend the life of the movie by purposely making it difficult to get in to see it. So there were a number of movies during the 1950s and 60s. A lot of, a lot of the big musicals, Sound of Music, um, which for many years was the most popular movie, mm-hmm. um, had some engagements that were that were greater than the 76 okay. of Star Wars. Okay. But yes. Star Wars is a little more unique in that it was a general release movie, even though it was exclusive in a lot mm-hmm. of markets, including Portland for most of its run. Right. It's still running five times a day, even six or seven on the weekends, whereas those road shows were playing once a night. You know, unless you count odd, unique things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which has had, mm-hmm. you know, midnight screenings in, that have gone on for, for, for decades. I don't know if that's a fair comparison because that's a <laughs> unique situation. But, you know, a lot of the Lucas and Spielberg films had some pretty incredible runs during that in the years following Star Wars. Whether it was yeah. Close Encounters did very, very well, but not they didn't have any runs that were approaching the, the, the Star Wars average. Uh, but Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. had some year, several year plus runs. Yeah, it's just such a such a different landscape today. It's just hard to even fathom. Well, without home video, or in that area, the home video did exist, but it was pretty much in its infancy. I mean, most people didn't have a VCR yet, so there was no uh, downside to just parking the movie in the theater and letting it play for months and months and months. As long as people still showed up, there was no incentive to, to drop it. In the Portland situation, Close Encounters did not play at the Westgate as a result of 20th Century Fox jumping in and, and <clears throat> exercising a clause in the contract that allowed it to, to stay. Yeah. The way the situation played out, it implies that it didn't drop below that threshold. It was about a little over 6,000 was the figure Okay. until the autumn of 1978 when it was pulled. It would be interesting to see if it really truly did take that long to drop below that figure because I think at some point – Toward the end, see, I get the impression that luxury theaters was unhappy that Fox jumped in like that to try to, you know, yeah. kind of dictate how they're going to run their business. Yeah. But toward the end, they seemed very uh, boastful about having the, the world's longest run of the movie. They're, toward the end of the run, they ran some congratulatory ads talking about how they had the, oh, okay. you know, the last couple of months of the of the, of the time it was there. It was the only place in the country it was playing. And, uh, you know, they had these farewell ads and stuff so they really they really played that up yeah yeah it's hard to say if they had succeeded in moving star wars to another theater and then playing close encounters at the westgate it's hard to say whether or not star wars would have continued to play the same amount of time 
if, yeah. if they had if they had dropped it down to an ordinary screen and weren't playing it in 70 millimeter anymore, it probably would have not lasted that long. You know, they were a destination cinema because of that. I mean, they had the only 70 millimeter presentation in, in the state of Oregon and the only one in between Seattle and San Francisco oh, during wow. during during that period of time. So yeah. you had people traveling to see it there. Just crazy. Um, thanks again, Michael, um, for for all this great background and and i look forward to having you back on the podcast sometime soon to kind of go a little bit deeper because you are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to star wars at the movies so thank you well thank you for inviting me and uh, i'd love to to be on again Of all films, it was Magic, the Richard Attenborough-directed ventriloquist horror love story that dethroned Star Wars at the Westgate on Wednesday, November 8th, 1978. Abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto, changeo, and now he is me. Hocus, pocus, we take her to bed. Magic is free. We are dead. Joseph E. Levine presents Magic. A terrifying love story starring Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith. Rated R. <sighs> it took a murderous dummy named Fats to finally put an end to it all. Here he is, boys! Here he is, world! Huge thanks again to Tracy, Dave, and Michael for coming on the podcast to share their memories and help tell the story of Star Wars at the Westgate. Dave had also sent me a great set of period photos of the theater, and Michael had shared some fantastic local newspaper ads and article clippings from his own research, all of which are on the episode post with show notes and links on the main site, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com. As always, you can keep up with all the latest updates on the Star Wars at the Movies Facebook page, and be sure to join the community in the connected Facebook group. Speaking of which, with the new Star Wars movie hitting screens in just a couple of weeks, part of the goal of this entire project is to preserve and share the franchise's current movie-going experience as it's unfolding. So I'd love to see some photos of your Last Jedi cinematic excursions in the Facebook group. I'll be sharing mine there, as well as on the project's Instagram account, which you can follow at at Star Wars at the Movies. This is all to say that the site and podcast's focus will be on the present and not-too-distant past for the next little while, so I hope that those of you that are excited about the contemporary state of Star Wars affairs will enjoy and participate, and uh, those that aren't, I will bear with me. Not to worry, I'll be digging back into the classics in the new year. Until then, grab that popcorn and soda, enjoy the ride, and remember... Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun.